Well, how's everyone doing? Well, we're really spread out here tonight, aren't we? That's all right. I'll, I'll just do it like this. Well, um, let, me, let me just um, thank you for doing that. It's bright. Um, do you mind if I pray again? I need to. This is for me. So, Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for what a wonderful God you are. Lord, that last song just, um, just touched my heart. What a wonderful name it is. I don't even think we understand what that means, but I, we just praise you anyway with what we do know. You are just incredible. I ask that you be here with us because you are the deciding difference in church is your presence. Um, when you're here, wonderful things happen. And when you're not, we miss you so much. So I just invite you to be here. And I pray, Lord, that you'd open our hearts to your word and you would interpret for me into the lives of your people in Jesus' name. Amen? So um, I'm going to make some adjustments here. You know, recently I was reading somewhere that, um, I'm just going to, it's a message, it's a, it's a um, quote, and so I'm going to read it, I'm just going to say it, and then we're going to stop and just think about it for a moment. This is, um, says, fear is imagining a future without God in it. And so I think at the basis of most fear and anxiety and uh, trouble is a, a sense that we're alone. And that we're not sure that God's going to come through for us. At least that's been my experience in ministry for years in my own personal life. But I do think that a future without God in it is, is a scary thing. And I have ever, we have every right to fear that. Um, but as I thought about it, I heard the Lord say to me, you know, Bob, the reason that you, you have some feeling when you read that, there's some emotion, and it touches you, is because there's some areas of your heart that are still uh, unsure and insecure. And he said, and I want to talk to you about that. So I, uh, to be honest, the first thing I thought of was that I would be getting a scolding because I wasn't, you know, coming up and having this, I wouldn't be in this man of faith and being strong and everything. And he says, you know, there's still some areas in your life where you're not sure that I'm for you, that I'm going to be there for you, and I'm going to be strong for you. Um, and so um, I thought I'd done something wrong, and I was, I was being corrected, it felt like, because I have this daddy issue going on all the time. And I, I, I thought, oh, wow, God, what did I do that would uh, require you to come and correct me? And uh, to be honest, uh, but I remembered that there was something I had memorized a few years ago, and I, it came to me, and it, and it said this, um, God is not looking at, wh at what's wrong with you. Because Jesus took care of that forever. He's looking at for what is missing in your experience with him. So if we understand that God is not looking at us and finding fault and correcting us and being critical and judgmental, he said all that was done away with Jesus. What I'm looking at is what's missing in your experience that I need to bring to you. And so with that in mind, I went back and read some material um, from um, Graham Cook. And I uh, found this quote that was in, that, in line with that same thinking. It said, when the Holy Spirit, Spirit puts his finger on a part of your life that's not working, he's pointing at the side of your next miracle. 
Now, I was encouraged by that. That To me, now, this sounded like an opportunity rather than <laughs> being sent to the principal's office. And so he's saying, Bob, there's this area in your life that I want to bring more fullness and more understanding and more life, and you're missing that. So when I read that quote, any fear I had of punishment went right out the window. And so it did sound like an opportunity to grow. Because it... Um, it, to me, it, there was uh, an anticipation of something good that would be coming from God. Later that week, uh, the Lord continued our discussion, as He will, and He began with this question. And he asked, and this was the title of my message tonight, and He said, Bob, um, who do you say I am? And I was thinking to myself, why is He asking this question? Is this a trick question, or, you know, are we going somewhere here? Because I was trying to think through all the right answers, all the Christian answers. Can you think of all the Christian answers you're supposed to say? And I thought, you know, it's not going to work with him. He sees right through that. And uh, so I might as well just be honest. And so I got to thinking about that. I didn't answer him right away because I didn't have the answer in my heart that I owned that was realistic and authentic, and I wanted to ponder that and, and, and develop a real dialogue with him that was honest and genuine so that he could bring that revelation to me that I would need. But... Um, you might recognize that question. It's the same question Jesus asked Peter and his disciples. And, um, and I remembered that the purpose of Jesus asking that question was not that he would humiliate anyone with a, because of a wrong answer. And uh, because several people gave wrong answers and he didn't correct them. He just kept going around their circle until the Holy Spirit landed on the one he had chosen. And Peter gave the right answer. And Jesus said, hot dog, you got it. You know, this is a revelation for you. And as I thought about that, I thought, well, that's what God's doing here. He's looking for an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to bring me a revelation that would help me understand more fully who he is so that it would affect my life in a positive way. It would fill my life, and I would be uh, a different person. So thinking back on that question, I wish I had asked him this. I would wish I said, well, who do you say you are? Uh, but I don't think that fast. And so I, this came to me later as I was going through my notes. Um, but over a period of time, I thought about his question. I think he showed me that there's three clues that I saw in this thing about how to find out, how to discover and get the revelation of who God really is. So I'm just going to share with you my notes. This is out of my journal, and it's not a, you know, it's probably not a dissertation that, that you could share at the seminary. But this is this is how I do it. And so in my journaling, I, this is what the Lord gave me. The first clue He said was, He asked He asked all of these in the form of a question. He said, "Who do trusted mature believers say that I am?" He said, "Bob, do you know anybody that you really trust, that you respect, that you think walks with me, that?" Um, you could ask that question, and you would expect to get a good answer. I remember a pastor years, maybe 25 years ago, told me, maybe longer than that. He said, you know, Bob, what the, the key here is to go find people who love Jesus more than you do and hang out with them. He said, it'll get on you. It's good for you to be in that realm with people who are mature and ask them these hard questions and listen to their experience. So that was the first thing. He says, finding out who I am could be as easy as hanging out with people who know more than you do. He says, no one has ever plumbed the depths of who I am. He will spend the rest of eternity with me revealing more of who I am, and you'll, it'll cause worship in heaven. 
for eternity. But hang out with people that are just about a page and a half ahead of you on this discovery. And, um, and so I thought in the area of mature believers, people who I trusted their testimonies, and I've seen the fruit in their lives, and I thought they were authentic. Uh, I went back over some of the writings. I found several who were speaking the same, the same message I was studying. And first was another quote from Graham Cook. I really admire him. Um, and we're kind of on the same path. He's just way ahead of me. And so I'm kind of tracking with him. But he said this, and this is another quote that I want you to think through with me for a moment. He said, what you think about God is the most important thought you will ever have. Now, this is beyond me. I had to go chew on that one a little bit. What you think about God is the most important thought you will ever have. I wondered what that meant. I guess the Christian answer would have been something simple or, you know, cliched or something, but I wanted to get in this. This was, this was meat, and I wanted to be able to eat it. So I read on further, and Graham went deeper with that, and he explained it somewhat by saying this. He said, our image of God will drive every single part of our life and declare how we show up in the world. So how you see God as you understand him and know him to be will drive your life because every decision you make will come out of that understanding. Let me explain that further. He went on to say, do, you, do we live a life of faith and boldness and conviction? Sometimes. And he says, if we don't, we need to examine our perceptions of God. So I thought, this is a, this is a good thing. I'm going to go back and I'm going to look at what I believe about God. And I'm going to open that to him for correction and adjustment, and revelation. Obviously, there's some things that he wants to show me that I haven't seen. So it was kind of like if you don't live a victorious, fulfilling life, then look at the, your view of God and start there. So I did. So in the spirit of transparency, though, I want to be honest and, and say to you that faith, boldness, and conviction uh, are not things that I major in all the time. And so there's some areas there that where I can really grow. So I asked the Lord to help me do that and to examine my perceptions of him and to show me what was wrong. And so he had told me the first thing is to hang out with people who are better at this than you, who know more, who have experienced more, who are genuine. You can see it in their lives. And so that was the first clue. Later in my studies, I came across another person out of respect highly, and I've read his uh, devotionals for 30 years, I guess. His name is Oswald Chambers. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's, uh, he's dead now. But he had wrote some incredibly deep things. And he said this, Faith is deliberate confidence in the character of God. Now that threw me for a minute because a deliberate conf confidence is different than a casual confidence. Deliberate is consciously intentional. Now, I don't make this difficult, but I do want to get an understanding that, that faith is something that we participate in. It's not just a gift. It comes to us as a gift, but it's something we have to nurture and bring to maturity with our interaction with God. The opposite of this deliberate confidence might be unfocused and casual pursuit of God, just a 
laissez-faire, I'm just going to walk through life and see what happens, reactive kind of thing, where I'm not participating, I'm not being part of this um, interaction with God. So how do you become more focused and hands-on in your approach? How do you become deliberately confident in God's character? I don't know. So I had to go back to the author and ask him, how can I become more deliberately confident in you, Lord? And about that time, I had a picture of something. And it came to me, and it was like this. These, these glasses, these prescription lens, if they were in their old um, form, these are compressed and some kind of new technology, but if they were in their old form, they would be as thick as Coke bottles. I, I tell you, I cannot see you right now. I have two two problems. One is an astigmatism, and the other is myopia. And if you, if you know what that means, it means I'm nearsighted, and my vision is distorted because of irregularity on my um, lens. Both of which are corrected to 2020 with good lenses. So the problem there in my natural state is also the problem I have in my spiritual state. I am nearsighted, and I have a distortion of things I see. <laughs> and I thought, well, that was real clever of him. So um, the only thing that works for me is to is get a corrected lens. And periodically, because of my advancing age, I have to go in and, and get a new exam by a professional. I can't just tell you how much I've, vision I've lost because over a period of time, you can't tell that. I have to get it uh, an exam. This is done by a qualified doctor, not by myself. But the thing I do have in this whole thing is the ability to make the appointment and to show up. That's my part. I'm not the professional. I don't, I don't correct the vision. I don't even make an assessment on how bad it is. But my part is to show up. You get it? That's our part, is to answer the invitation. So that's one clue. Checking in with mature Christians, getting their story of God. But if I really wanted to lay a foundation of trust with God and kind of re-examine what I think, it wouldn't just be what someone else said about God. Sooner or later, I have to come to some conclusions about what I think. I have to own this. It can't be a borrowed theology. So this posed the question in, to clue number one the Lord gave me. And he said this, the Lord asked me, what have I shown you in my word? What have you read and studied that you own that's yours, that you really believe? And I thought to myself, um, you know, I need to go back and look at that because I'm not really sure. You'd think after all this time I'd have this nailed, wouldn't you? But, you know, over time, your perception and your understanding of God changes. He takes you deeper and deeper. It was then I remembered some old classes I took years ago in a ministry school when I first started out. And we'd, uh, we studied God's nature. What is, are the characteristics of God? And they had a class. Um, they have it in seminary and in Bible schools. They have a class for understanding the nature of God. And do you know what they call it? Systematic theology. And everybody's going, oh, no, ho-hum. But I want you to know, in understanding the characteristics and the nature of God, we come to a better understanding of who he is, and we engage him differently. The word theology is really a two-part two word that just means the study of the nature of God. So this was God's second clue. I started there. And so you know, the basis of understanding the Lord in these seminaries and Bible schools, the basis of coming, gathering information is all taken from the Bible. 
That is the information that we have available to us about who God is and how he interacts with people. And as I, I thought, well, I'm going to go back through the Bible and, and just begin to put together an outline of things that I read that I believe are true about God and see if I can come to some kind of summation. I'm going to put all the facts down and read those and see if I can do a summary statement of what I believe. And I was immediately taken to a passage in Hebrews 4. And if you don't know, I don't, we don't know who the author is exactly, but the author who wrote this um, had been taking us through a kind of a history lesson about the nation of Israel. And prior to Hebrews 4, he was um, telling about their 40-year journey through this wilderness, how they had been escaped and been delivered from Egypt, and how they began a journey through a desert headed for a land that God promised was theirs. And so um, the first generation of Hebrews who came out of Egypt were, I, I believe they were absolutely ignorant of God. They had no idea. They had not practiced their faith. They were coming out of a pagan country, and this was an all-new experience for them. And so God really was gracious in, in dealing with them for over 40 years. He did some pretty incredible things that have never been repeated in history. And um, they were so ignorant that they had to rely almost entirely on their pastor, a man named Moses. So we find them at the end of their wandering experience in the desert wilderness, and this is where the point picks up in Hebrews 4. They've been in God's Bible school clinic for 40 years, and they're no farther along than they were when they started. Now, I can understand that except for where they had been. You might remember they had been miraculously delivered out of the hands of Egypt, been given a, new, a promise of a new land, a new life, um, a new inheritance of God's presence. They, they had been fed the bread of heaven daily. They followed a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, those are miraculous things that would tend to make you believe in God. And uh, these are demonstrations of his power that were given to them to draw them into this relational dynamic that would eventually give them faith in him. They had, uh, in 40 years, their clothes never wore out. And the people never got sick. No women miscarried children. Every miraculous bit of care that was necessary, God provided for them. And yet... In spite of all this experience, they were still ignorant of God and his ways. And why was that? Why do you suppose, after 40 years of seeing God bring demonstration after demonstration of miraculous things, they still were in the same place in their faith with God? Hebrews 4, 2 says, The message they heard did not benefit them because it was not mixed with faith. And then in parentheses, the Amplified explains faith, and it says, the leaning of the entire personality on God in absolute trust and confidence in His power, His wisdom, and goodness. So there was something missing in their experience. They had heard the words, but they had received no benefit, and they had no faith in God in spite of their experience. And it says, neither were they united in faith with the ones who did believe. That would have been two men out of a million people, Joshua and Caleb. 
I want you to hear that clearly. The nation of Israel could not receive God's blessing because they had not learned the clinic, the faith lesson that was available to them in the wilderness. And before we judge them too harshly, I want you to know they are just like us. They're human beings with the same failings and thinkings and humanity that you and I have. And there was something that was missing in their experience. They didn't believe what they heard from their pastor. And they didn't believe the testimony of other mature believers who gave the testimony of God's faithfulness. And when the trials and the struggles came, they hadn't developed their trust in God to the point where they could turn to Him with faith and allow Him to work that into their lives, where they could, they could rise up and be victorious in the face of things that were, in the natural, were insurmountable, a land full of giants and warriors, and they just folded. See, faith is a child of adversity. Faith is born out of waiting in the midst of struggle while anticipating God's goodness. In the fire of the struggle, they had didn't have the foundation of believing God, and they couldn't come through and receive their blessing of their inheritance. Why? Sure. In the fire of the struggle. Hmm. Oh, you want my... Okay, I can give you my notes too. Faith is a child of adversity. This is just my thinking, so it sounds maybe different, but I want you to understand that faith comes to us not when we're doing well. Faith comes to us when we believe God in the midst of struggle and adversity, and something's born in us that believes for more. If we contend, if we turn and run, we don't get that lesson. Why did they not develop trust and confidence in God during those 40 years? Good grief. Why don't we? You know? Why haven't I by now? Why am I going through these lessons? And, and I've been in the ministry for 30 years. And yet, God, every year I see something new and deeper and more um, a different facet of the jewel that he is. My personal opinion about the nation of Israel, this is not necessarily scholarly, but it's what I see is that they, during these 40 years, they put their trust in a man named Moses. I believe that Moses was their pastor, and they absolutely relied on him to teach them what God was saying, and they were satisfied with that. Their relationship with God was secondhand at best, and I believe it was based on what someone else told them that God said, not something they owned in their own hearts. Does that make sense to you? I believe this is true. Don't get me wrong. Um, I think good sermons are helpful. And pastors have something to say. But you know what? You can't, your life you can't be based on what the pastor told you. You have to own that in your heart. Or it's just lodged in some memory cell in your brain. Yeah, thank you. The work of believing God is part of your struggle and the building of your trust and confidence when times are difficult. And the reason I, I keep hearing this is because God's telling me in my life that things won't always be as good as they are now, and he wants us to be prepared as a people to live by faith. It's much like a, a relationship with people, though, this relationship with God. You can't have a relationship with a person 
Because experiential knowledge is something that you get as you interact with that person in a shared life. You can't get information about a person and know them. You have to spend time with them. You've heard that before. It requires interaction with God. And in turn, when we draw close to Him and we ask Him for help in this relational thing that we don't know how to do, He says, I'm glad you asked. And He brings us the empowering grace to come close and get what we need in the moment because that was His idea in the beginning. He calls us into these places so that He can give us what we need so we can become the people of promise. The Bible tells us the Jews were terrified of God. When he appeared to them on the mountain and it was full of fire and there was a booming voice, I would have run too. But in 40 years, he had a chance to draw them into something else. First, he began with the fear of God so they wouldn't turn away. So they would understand his power. And then he began to work through relationship to draw them into something that was more personal and more dynamic in relationship. And so... These people were scared to death of, of, of God. They sent Moses to meet with this fire-breathing God on the mountaintop. And they said, we will not go there. You just tell us what he says and we'll do it. Well, we know they didn't. Because they hadn't heard the words themselves. It was secondhand from, from their pastor. And that just doesn't work, folks. We can get a good message. But the messages we get are just an introduction to the author. You absolutely must find application. There was only two men out of the whole bunch, Joshua and Caleb. We don't know much about Caleb's history because I, I don't recall seeing his biography in the Bible, except that he showed up at certain times and he was an amazing man. And something had happened to his, in his life that he was just like Joshua in his resolution. At 80 years old, he said, I'm as strong as I ever was, and if you will give me opportunity, I'll go up on the mountain and I'll take the mountain away from the giants. At 80 years old. So the, the man had some substance, some roots. He had some connection with God that actually believed that God was for him and would move through his life. But we do know about Joshua. And Joshua's life was like this. Um, when Moses went into the tent to meet with God, guess who was right there on his coattail? Every single time, Joshua wanted to be in the midst of the encounter and observe it and see it and experience it. And when Moses left the tent of meeting, guess what? Joshua didn't leave. It says he stayed because he was hungry for knowledge of God. Now, that, I don't know what the ratio was there. I'm not a mathematician, but that two men out of a million is not real good return on your investment. But God knew what he was doing. Hebrews 4 tells us that although this lesson of trust came way too late for the first generation, they couldn't enter into the promised land. They didn't have the ability to trust God to go take what was theirs. And they had to circle back through the wilderness again. And it said they all died in the wilderness. It was the next generation, their children, that came up on the land again. And this time they had been prepared. This time they had a measure of obedience and faith. And they were ready to go do what God called them to do. And, and Joshua became their new leader, this young man who had stayed in the tent getting to know God. And he had incredible faith in what God would do. He was absolutely obedient to God in everything he heard. That's a pretty incredible graduation there. I think this man was full of the Spirit. I think God visited him, anointed him with great wisdom and leadership. So where does this faith journey begin? 
Psalm 34, 8 tells us this. Drink deeply of the pleasures of this God. In other places it says, come and taste that He's good. And it says this, experience for yourself the joyous mercies He gives to all who hide themselves in Him. There's something about, come and check me out. Come and see if I'm not who I say I am. And experience for yourself the joy of this relationship. This is something you have to do for yourself. I can direct you. I can even, I can even receive direction from the Lord. But unless I respond and move in that direction and, my, and I develop a hunger for God, something doesn't happen that feeds me. The experience of uh, upgrading our faith in God comes as we taste and see that He's good. As you actually attend to His invitation, if He invites you into the relationship, you need to make an appointment and show up. You get it? He does everything else. All the empowering grace is God's. The obedience and the giving of our wills is our part. Examine God's claims for yourself. Read the Bible for yourself. Hang out with all the Joshuas and Caleb's you can find. Find people who love Jesus more than you do and be obnoxious with them. Hang out and get everything you can from them so that your experience becomes rich. Now, I'm talking to people who I believe are pursuing God or you wouldn't be here on a Saturday night. I think your heart is turned toward this. and I think you are probably responsive to the message of the Holy Spirit that's inviting you to come closer. And in this season, God is preparing His people for great exploits. This end time will be a victorious church. I know there will be difficulties and there will be some serious trials. But as we respond to the Lord, He is preparing our hearts to believe that He is fully able to do everything He said He would do. Do you agree with me? Where in the Bible is God so perfectly modeled and personified than in the life of Jesus. It was Bill Johnson who said, if you want to see the Father, look at Jesus. He is perfect theology. He is a perfect model of the exact representation, in fact, a mirror of the Father. And if you have questions about who God is, look at Jesus. And we're going to do that next month. I'm going to take you through the characteristics of Jesus that exemplify and represent who the Father is. So we can begin to get faith. We can begin to have a confident trust in the Father that He is who He says He is, and He will relate to us in the way He says He will. We only can do that as we risk something in the relationship. You with me? So next month we'll delve further into this faith-building lesson. But I, this week... I want you to encourage you to do this. Would you try your very best to hang out with God and ask Him to show Himself to you? He wants to. He's inviting you into this relationship tonight through my words, and He's saying, come closer. Would you just risk that this week? Go to Him and say, I don't have all the answers. I don't even understand all the questions, but I'm your child, and I'm here to learn. His countenance toward you is good. He loves you. And every time He calls you to Him, it's not for a spanking. 
It's to give you what you're missing in your experience. Amen? So his invitation to you tonight is to come and taste and see. It's time for you to go deeper in knowing me. This is the day, and you're the people, and now's the time. He says, I've hidden clues all around you. We were talking about this, Aaron and I. It's like a treasure hunt. Now, when I go out during the day, God's saying, I've hidden things all around where I've been and where I am, and I want you to take notice. And where I am, I want you to be. And what I'm doing, I want you to do, and I want you to risk it. And I want to see you grow. This is the way we'll do it. So let me pray for you. What do we get tonight? What do we understand that God was saying? First of all, he said, listen to the testimony of people you trust and draw their faith from them. That's okay. That's why he wrote the Bible. It's full of people with testimonies. He says, believe those. Go to people around you that are Joshua's. And people who believe the stuff, not people who are naysayers and, and they're just all the time whining about how this world's going to hell in a handbasket. You know what? It's in trouble. But we're the answer. And I believe God is going to prepare us to encounter these people with answers. The second thing we learned is the Bible is full of clues about God, and they're hidden there for you to find. And he will absolutely illuminate things for you to see that you never understood about him. And if you begin to make a record of those in your journals, in your prayer time, it'll begin to change who you are radically. Anybody want to believe that with me? It's absolutely the truth. This is an invitation to come closer. So let me pray for you. Is that okay? Because we're going to do this. And I'm going to bring it again next month, and we're going to talk about Jesus representing the Father. Okay? So, Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to represent you in word and, and spirit. I, I pray, God, that you would come and do what you said you would do. As so much sense you're drawing close and you're inviting us in such a, a wonderful way to come and to be fully developed and, and to become huge and large, uh, full of your presence, and to change our communities and our lives and our, our nation. We are the agent of change by your Holy Spirit. And we've been afraid of that. We've not even believed that because we didn't know who you were. Come and show us who you are. Come and show us your characteristics and your ways and your nature that we might... <laughs> be amazed at you. And in the amazement, we might fall in love with you and give our lives to you again and again and again. This is the way of your Spirit. Thank you for your invitation. We accept it. And ask now for your empowering grace in the name of Jesus. Amen?